Hello, Eater of Cell listeners. Welcome back. This is Amanda Clute, Editor-in-Chief of Eater. I am joined today, as always, with AP Dan. Hello, Amanda Clute, Editor-in-Chief of Eater. <laughs> you want to say what you do? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm an associate producer um, of Eater. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Today, we are doing another Best Of episode. This one is Anthony Bourdain, the man, the legend. Uh Dan, did you know that Bourdain was? <laughs> Come on, I have I have an idea. I'm ready for ready? it. Yeah, I don't know. What did you're you say. know he was in the news this weekend? No, and this double sucks because I also didn't know that our last episode, Pretty, was in the news two days before. I think it's funny to sometimes look up news stories and see all the different headlines that people wrote about this news story. So I would love for you to right now Google. Anthony okay. Bourdain on your phone and tell me what comes up. Read to me like the variety of headlines. Should we have like, should we have an insert like a Googling music that we have <laughs> yeah, in the Classic there? Google sound. Okay. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> First, what do you see and then what, okay. what are the headlines? First one is an Esquire image and the headline is Anthony Bourdain's abs come from hours of hard work. <laughs> Pretty good. And the picture is... Just him looking insanely ripped on the beach, right? Yeah. I, I, like his body a, is absolutely a, insane. Safe for work. You, you guys should Google this at home. It is safe for work. It is a little uh, extreme. It's a little extreme. The, There's hmm. no nudity. His trousers are are fringing on an NSFW. Don't be a prude. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. I, what are the other headlines? What else you well, got? Well, I zoomed like, in what? on this one. <laughs> okay. Uh, men's health. The workout that got Anthony Bourdain totally shredded at 61. Anthony Bourdain and Asia Argento are ripped. Um, (laughs) Anthony Bourdain consumes only this one thing on airplanes because they can't fuck that up. (laughs) (laughs) That's probably less related to this story about these photos emerging. I just think it's funny. Wow, he's so ripped. (laughs) Was there something that I missed that you were? Uh, no, no, no. I just is this I just, breaking I, news. I just, I just, <laughs> I was thinking about today. We're going to talk about Anthony Bourdain and yeah. what that made me think of was the news story that came up over the weekend, which is he is very ripped, and seeing all of these news sites, including TMZ and Men's Health, coming up with their clickbait headlines to get you to click on it. He's genuinely ripped, though. He's not. No, he is. It's he not is. when you see some. Uh, 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 this person looks great at sixty-five. It's he's ripped. Yeah. Yeah. Fudge. TMZ, who had the original photos, their headline was Anthony Bourdain, I'm ripped in Rome, and so is my new GF. Triple exclamation point. <laughs> this is what you have to deal with when you are a star. I think this is probably one of the better things he has to deal with. Though. The, this is f- The good news is the interview you are about to hear mm-hmm. is very serious. They get into real issues. They don't talk about no. abs at all. Yeah. So here's Tony. And quickly, as always, we would remind you to rate the podcast five stars if you could and tell some people that we are fantastic and fun. And with that, we will get into today's best of interview. It's Anthony Bourdain it distilled into a perfect 30 minutes where you will hear nothing about his stomach. Uh, take it away, strange noise. Congratulations on the book. I mean, it really, it really, the, the Stenman cover is, what, what is, what is this a picture of? It's like a lot of angry faces. I never asked. I mean, uh, was very grateful. Initially, when I asked him to do the cover, he said, no, I just don't have time. And 
I don't really have the inspiration. I don't know what I do. And the next day, ooh, I get an email of like a, a splatter. <laughs> and the day after that, the splatter has grown into something else. And every day I watch the thing coming together as he slowly became inspired. And uh, and then I started to get other work. He just started sending me not just a... Uh, unrelated works of art, but actual physical prints. I would in the mail, like tube after tube of these gorgeous uh, limited edition uh, uh, Stedman uh, prints and originals. So you know, my you know my whole office is filled with them now, which is you know heaven for me. That's incredible. He's a hero of mine, so it was really an adventure. It, it makes sense to me that he's um, that he's working with you, that you guys are connected f- through this book, because he is, I think, so incredibly famous for his collaboration with Hunter S. Thompson. Yeah. And that whole, I guess, the genesis of this idea of gonzo journalism, where you just throw yourself in and you see what the fuck happens. And A Very important book for me. I mean, I think I read uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. I must have been 12, 13 when it first started being serialized in Rolling Stone magazine, which was a very different uh, magazine back then. And it was just a kind of a cataclysmic event for me. I mean, no one had written like that before. And those and the illustrations were such an important part of it. And it expressed all my anger and rage and frustration and 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 as well as the humor of these really awful, awful times, uh, both uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and then later uh, Campaign Trail. And I think it's obvious if you read my stuff how, how besotted I was with Thompson, maybe overly so, but, but, but uh, those books are really important. And Ralph's art was very important to me. Do you see a through line between that style of gonzo journalism and the work that you do now? I think I'd be flattering myself uh, overly if I said that. I, I would say it was a, certainly an inspiration. It was a, a kind of a liberating. Uh, it made me. Uh, it made me fall in love with hyperbole, in a way that uh, the power of hyperbole and and the beauty, potential beauty of hyperbole, that was, you know, I, I think I try to echo. One of the things that is interesting about gonzo journalism as a style of journalism is the question of whether it's journalism. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, its critics said that there was too much of the writer and there was too much subjectivity and that there is a certain sort of purity of truth that true journalism has to contain that no. gonzo journalism couldn't do. And, you know, I have like this note scrawled down here of a question to ask you. Do you think of yourself as a journalist? No, I do not. Why not? Um, <clears throat> I don't feel qualified. I don't feel interested. Uh, I don't want to feel restrained uh, by that title. Uh, I see myself as an essayist, maybe. Even in television, like a visual essayist? I, I just, a... uh, yeah, yeah. I'm a storyteller essayist, um, but I'm always speaking from my point of view. My own, my point of view always comes first. It's always subjective. And, and I think that's, uh, that's the only way I can write and the only way I should write, probably. How does your writing connect to your on-camera work? You know, it's the same thing. You're telling a story. When you write a story on paper, you're trying to get the reader to feel a certain way. You know, you want them to feel how you felt at the time if you're telling something that happened that you saw or you you experienced. Um, or you want to drive them to a certain opinion or way of looking at things. It's the same, you know, when I go someplace with a camera crew and I come back with a bunch of footage. While I'm there, I'm working with my producers to think about what shots, what style, what music, how do we use all of these additional tools because the strange and terrible powers of television are really exciting to me. You can much more easily make someone feel sentimental or angry or frightened um, 
it's I'm not going to say it's child's play, but when you when you have the additional tools of an editing room, the cutaway shot, music, these are so powerful and helpful in getting to make people feel a certain way. You know, just the cutaway. Uh, what you there's a great the classic Eisenstein uh, example of the I think it's the crying baby that they cut to a, a different facial expressions that you you feel about that about these people just however they might have been filmed in isolation and actually reacting to the fact that they seem to be reacting to a crying baby you think they're either monstrous or really nice you know completely dependent on what the image you've seen before um, I take full advantage of those things and I I enjoy using them I mean it is all about context I guess yeah but it's a look it's a very manipulative writing is manipulative speaking is manipulative it's sort of the whole point um, but television uh, and film are very, very manipulative. And I think uh, it's useful to acknowledge that regardless of whether it's journalism or not. Uh, and I don't even want to think about what, what journalism might require because I'm really enjoying that manipulative aspect. I embrace it and I think about exactly that all the time. I think that journalism is just as manipulative as anything else. It just often wraps itself in the fiction that it isn't. Yeah. It pretends to be telling the truth, but there's no such thing as truth. I mean, we can get very existential. Yeah, like, I mean, you know, the classic examples, you know, the cutaway to the, the charred teddy bear, you know, at the scene you know, of, of, of uh, you know, anything terrible. I mean, come on, that is, that's a cutaway. Yeah. And it's, uh, or I've done interviews, many interviews on, you know, reputable news magazines where at the end of the interview, they shoot all the cutaways of the, of the host sitting there nodding with a, with a, with a variety of facial expressions. Like, oh, that's so interesting. Nod, you know, solemn face, happy face. Ho, ho, ho. Uh, oh, that's, you know, tear up. I mean, it really kind of takes the air out of uh, the whole enterprise. Let's get back to yep. the cookbook, which is an interesting addition to, and you can like throw your coffee in my face for saying the phrase I'm about to say, your personal brand. Mm -hmm. Because I think for many of your fans, of whom there are an extraordinary number, you're not really thought of as a home cook. Right. And suddenly here's this book where you are making this powerful case for the pleasures of cooking for your family and cooking mm -hmm. for yourself and being at home and not like eating a taco at a taco stand under a hill of bullet fire from a Mexican drug cartel or whatever it is that your, your sort of um, like legion of bros think that look, you do all day. I, 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 it's a perverse instinct on one hand. Uh, and it's something I've tried to do throughout my career is whatever people expect me to do, I, 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 I kind of, I'm always looking to do the other thing. Um, you know, if they expect me to be running around in a leather jacket with a thumb ring forever, I'm not going to do that, you know? Um, and I thought this was sort of the most unexpected thing I could do. But at the same time, it's also an honest expression of my life for the last nine years. Uh, when I'm home, I'm not going out to dinner. I'm not going out to a club or hanging out at bars or seeing live music. Or you know, I don't know what people might think or expect me to be doing back in New York, but I'm probably that's not what I'm doing. I'm going to bed at 9 o'clock, 9.30 when my nine-year-old is, is, is tired enough to sleep. Uh, I wake up super early in the morning and I uh, m uh, make her uh, breakfast. Uh, I pack a little lunch for her. Uh, I pick her up at school, if at all, if, if my schedule permitting, uh, and, I, and I cook dinner for her. And most of those major food choice decisions are made in my, my nine-year-old daughter, uh, one with a fairly daring palate, I have to say. 
as it turned out. She likes uh, variety. I don't know if you've seen Eat, Drink, Man, Woman. Yeah. In much the same way, you know, that's a story of a dysfunctional family uh, where the grandfather is trying, the only way he can really express love is by cooking. And uh, the only way that the others can receive love is, is by eating. Uh, but one of my, some of my favorite scenes is when he just can't bear what the, the I guess his his nephew perhaps is uh, eating at school and starts preparing these incredible elaborate meals first for him but then for his entire class. Well, I'm not doing that, but I do. My daughter's challenged me to not repeat, you know, every day something different. So I'm pretty sure at her school she's the only student to ever go to school with spam masubi one day and you know. Sp- uh, pasta carbonara the next day and cotoletta milanese or uh, polpetti, a lot of Italian, obviously. Uh, but also, uh, you know, I've done curries, I've done, uh, you know, she likes octopus and things like that. And that goes over really well at school. She shows up with a little lunchbox filled with the tentacles. Yeah. You know, she's a star in her class. I bet that's really cool, right? Like when I was a kid, that probably would have gotten me shoved into a locker. But now, I, kids are really cool now. Well, she goes to school with a lot of Italian kids. Okay. So uh, uh, that's not that, you know, the teachers are going to be okay with it because yeah. they're Italian as well. I'm just grateful she likes that stuff. Uh, I, I certainly never tried to convince her to, you know, oh, try it. It's good. It's that, that That's not what I do. She wants to eat pasta with butter every day. I'm, I'm happy to do that. But she's a weird kid. Did you expect that? parenthood would involve so much cooking? Uh, I hoped so. I like it. I Believe it or not, I have a nurturing aspect of my personality that can turn into, there's an element of insanienta to me. I mean, uh, because I was a professional for so long, I overorganize. You know, the poor kid and her, her best friend, the, her nanny's daughter is her best friend in the world. And essentially, in every every respect, her brother, they've grown up together since infancy. They're they're seldom apart. Uh, the whole, ex- there's an entire extended Filipino family who are basically part of our family and, and uh, in and out of the house and, you know, with us on vacation. They were with us all on holiday. Christmas is, is uh, as depicted in the book, it's an odd admixture. I will do a cycle menu for them. You know, I, I plan the menu like a professional. I've got like a purchase order list, a cycle menu, what I'm going to do to merchandise, leftover, possible leftovers from dinner. And there is a part of me that wants to chase it around and say, you know, why don't you love me? You know, don't you like your food? And, you know. So who are you hoping is going to read the book? I never think about that. No? I hope a bunch of people and that they're happy, obviously, but I don't picture a viewer or a reader uh, that's, that's, uh, I've said that's the road to madness. Uh, I never would have been able to read, or would, I never would have been able to write anything if I ever sort of tried to think about what people might like or what they might expect. That would have, I would have choked. It can be terrifying. I, I mean, obviously parents, it would be nice if parents, I mean, yeah. you know what I'm, what I'm, what I don't want to be, what I don't want to, I don't, I'm uncomfortable you know, if too many bros like me, you know, if I'm accused of cooking dude food, I really kind of, I find that hurtful. I really, I don't identify with that. I, I I don't like it. Your connection to that sort of bro culture, maybe bro is the wrong word. Maybe we should just say like masculinity or like this very yeah, sort look, of I'm uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable with all of it. I mean, I think I come out of a, I mean, I come out of a culture, Kitchen Confidential was written looking back at a time where uh, I was coming out of, out of an environment that was 
largely male. The level of discourse was over testosterone, to say the least. I mean, even women within that that society were. That, I mean, that was the yeah. the way one spoke. Uh, but it was always hyperbolic. It was always uh, um, self mocking. Um, I mean, no one actually sort of brags about their masculinity in the kitchen because we all know otherwise because we're standing next to you and we know how pathetic and unmanly you are. So I was always like uncomfortable with that. I'm still uncomfortable with it. You know, and I think about it, it's like, you know, should I really put a ribs recipe on? You know, people will be like, oh, that dude, that's, that's awesome. And I don't want to hear that. In need of great talent for your business, but short on time? You don't have to get lost in a huge stack of resumes to find the perfect hire. You just need the right tools, smarter tools. And with ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click. So you can rest easy knowing that your job is being seen by the right candidates. Then ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work, actively notifying qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting so you receive the best possible matches. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you, it finds them. It's no wonder that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. ZipRecruiter, it's the smartest way to hire. And right now, Eater Upsell listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com eat. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash eat. One more time, try it again for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash eat. In your follow-up to Kitchen Confidential, Medium Raw, it felt like you did a little bit of intentional dismantling of that. Yeah. It felt like there was a lot of talking about the dangers of hubris and like the dangers of, of pushing yourself too far past what the sort of normal limitations of... Well, look, I think a lot of people read Kitchen Confidential uh, and kind of took all of the... In spite of what was in plain sight, uh, took away all of the stuff that, that, that affirmed their own bad choices rather than the big picture. I mean, people would hand me drugs, you know, during book tour. I mean... Uh, drugs clearly didn't work out well for me if you read Kitchen Confidential, but people would be like, oh, dude, that's awesome. I want to get high and, you know, snort coke through uncooked penne and do all of this shit, you know, myself. It's like, yeah, but, you know, what chapters did you not read? Um, Yeah, I mean, I think Medium Raw was uh, definitely uh, not to correct the record, but to remind people that I wasn't even that guy when I wrote Kitchen Confidential. I was writing about a period of time when, when, you know, I might have been. And it became such a touchstone for that whole sort of early 2000s edifice of the chef is rock star. And, yeah. and that, that seems to be changing now, I think, in the culture. Do you see that? That the, uh, the rock star era is maybe we not We were never end, rock stars. Um, and I think anyone who ever took that seriously uh, is really in peril. Uh, if, you know, I've jokingly said before, but I mean it. If any of us really thought we could have been rock stars. If any of us could have played guitar, we sure as shit wouldn't have cooked. Um, We cooked because there was nothing else for us, more often than not. That's changed. Now people cook in order to become rock stars, and that's delusional behavior. I mean, that ignores the very nature of the business, which is grinding repetition. And if you cannot submit to the life of where the first requirement is consistency and grinding repetition, then you're going to be a shitty chef. Uh... 
you know, the rock stars, the true rock stars of cooking were the, the people who, who were first, who changed the whole perception of what a chef should look like uh, and behave like. And they did it unintentionally. They couldn't help it. You know, Jeremiah Tower, Marco Pierre White, they were rock stars uh, because there were none like them before. Nobody wanted, there were no chefs that anyone wanted to fuck before uh, uh, Jeremiah and Marco. The, our, our image of what the chef was was this servile, uh, you know, dumpy uh, Italian probably with a twirling their mustache who would appear obsequiously at the table and with a popping gesture and, you know, what would, what would you like, signore, signore? I will do anything for you, you know, your species spicy meatballs. And the last person whose opinion you wanted was, of course, the chef. They were, they were the backstairs help. I'll, I'll tell you what I want, my good man. Um, they at least changed that. That's true. And and now, though, there is this phenomenon. And you've been, um, I think, thrillingly critical of some of the, the sort of metastasizations of food culture as a result of that, like the way that this has moved into the era of the TV chef and the, you know, the sort of the Paula Deans and Guy Fieri's of the world, but also, um, you know, restaurant cooks who maybe make their hunger for fame a little bit too transparent. Uh, look, I think the most obvious one is, like on Top Chef, you see everybody has a signature haircut, a signature look. Uh, there are a few chefs out there. Look, Mario was the first, and it was totally cool then because he was breaking the breaking the mold in, in the I don't give a fuck department. That look at the beginning, anyway, was an expression of I truly don't give a fuck. You're going to listen to my music. You know, I remember you go to Babo, and, and you know you're listening to you know the Clash at ear splitting volume, and you know a whole dining room full of miserable people with the, with the floor staff like begging Mario to turn it down. And he's like, no. Um, but now everybody's got their little look and their skateboard and signature pants and. Uh, you know, it's kind of some sad shit, you know, put in 20 years before you get a signature look. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm being a, a, a curmudgeon about this, but, you know, when you're 22 years old, you shouldn't be a signature or anything. Yeah, I think there's something. Get off my lawn. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like, I think, you know, no, I think there is something to this idea of like the the identity that grows organically over a many, many year career and life. Yes. And you sort of wake up one morning, you're like, oh, this is who I became. Yeah, I'm fucking 60. I'm not a fully formed adult yet. I'm still learning. I'm groping towards some kind of, you know, something. So at 22, it's like I'm a, I'm a ready-made product, ready for, uh, you know, a multiple units. Uh, you know, I'm a little uh, dubious, let's say. Like a fully owned subsidiary of Bravo Media. Oh, and there's some really extreme examples of this uh, that I've worked with and I've seen. And it's like... Oh, and I mean, chefs with their own hair and makeup people. It's like that something's melts wrong over a stove, here. You know, <laughs> yeah, like they're anywhere near a stove. Please <laughs> become a celebrity the time-tested way. Make a porn, you know. <laughs> have your mom leak it. Uh, you know, hire a publicist and get in some car wrecks. So, what's it like being famous? It's weird. It's not. I mean, it's not a, it's, I can hardly complain about it, but it's weird. It's a weird and unnatural thing. You seem to stay really real. Uh, I think because I'm old, uh, <laughs> because it, it happened for me, you know, uh, after, you know, in my mid 40s. Your mom released your porn. <laughs> yes. So everybody had seen everything already. <laughs> uh, no, it's just, I think, uh, you know, I knew what wasn't going to make my life better already. I'd already made a lot of the really big major mistakes. I, 
You know, it's like, oh, I'm famous. I could do cocaine now. You know, I already kind of had enough of that. Um, I, you know, I don't know. Um, it, did, it, it didn't and it doesn't thrill me. Uh, I'm not angry about it or resentful because it, it, it allows me this tremendous freedom to, you know, do these extraordinary things that few people are able to do. Like, you know, travel any place I want and eat all this great food and meet all of these people who I, 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 I look up to with hero worship. And, um, you know, if the worst thing about it is I mean, I'm running across an airport and I really got to piss and some really nice person stops me and wants a selfie when I'm like hopping up and down, you know. <laughs> it's like I'm dying. Just bring them with you to the bathroom. It, look, it's happened. I mean, <laughs> really? people, yeah, I mean, I'm full, you know, midstream and the You're guy start to me starts to have a conversation. I'm like, you know, dude, <laughs> now is like kind of not the perfect moment. I mean, you kind of got to admire his complete lack of boundaries. Uh, alcohol will do that. Uh, yeah. yeah, I guess. Let's talk a little bit about the show, which is in its eighth season. I think seventh? so. Some very high number. As well, we make we shoot go. we shoot one we shoot from September through to the end of June, sometimes into July every year in basically one go. Uh, but the, what we shoot sixteen shows are split into two chunks that are released as independent seasons. So how the network sees it and bills it is different than how we who make it uh, see it. Um, I think it's our fourth year. But over the over the life of the show, it's evolved in a really fascinating way. You know, I think actually we can sort of track it by, we do recaps of the show on, on Eater and you can see our, our Facebook commenters over the years have started saying with increased frequency, I like this better when it had less politics. Mm-hmm. And yeah. So was this a choice or is it something that's no, I just think it's a matter of I'm free to notice the elephant in the room. I know if I'm eating in Laos and a guy I'm eating with is missing an arm and a leg, it's worth mentioning or at least asking, hey, fella, what happened? And if he tells you, well, as a little kid, I was, uh, you know, I wasn't born during the Vietnam War, but, you know, as a little kid, I was wandering around and doing my farming with my dad. And I stepped on, you know, one of the, you know, three million tons of munitions left in our country and uh, unexploded ordnance. Look, that's not necessarily a political statement. It's a reality. And if you travel long enough to enough places and you have enough conversations with people, uh, you will notice those kinds of things. Who's eating? Who's not eating? Why are you eating full every single day? A big stack of bread and some watery beans. I'm not an activist. Uh, I don't. I don't have an agenda. Uh, but if I see something, I'm going to talk about it. And if I feel, you know, there are some exceptions. I'm obviously. I have a bug up my ass about uh, Mexican immigration because I take that personally, and that's a, that is an issue for me. Um, you know, I'm very aware of and supportive of. Uh, people who've been living and working in this country uh, as solid uh, contributors to our economy, as essential, fundamental contributors to our economy and our workforce, and who I've come to know many of personally. Okay, that's something that's personal. But generally, I go into a country and I don't really have enough, I don't have a fully formed opinion or agenda, but I tend to notice things. And I and I've been given the freedom to notice and to wander away from the meal. I don't have to shove food in my face. You know, people will say, you know, stick to food, man. Like my food is like my, you know, my, my, because I'm not what a professional pundit. Uh, my opinion is worthless. Look, I've been traveling the world for 16 years now. Uh, I've seen a lot of shit. 
Uh, I'm a citizen of the United States of America and a parent. Um, I am by far not the most educated man in the world, but you know, I have an opinion and I'm not going to tell you who to vote for, but, um, you know, I do notice things and I do have opinions. And if the guy I ate with in Russia, uh, who says, uh, no, I'm not worried about Putin killing me is shot to death on the front lawn of the Kremlin a few months later, I might mention that. (laughs) I think it's worth, you know, it's worth bringing up. Yeah, and and food is politics too, and politics is food. Yeah. I mean, like you were saying about eating fool and bread. I mean, you know, there's a reason that people eat the way that they eat, even if they don't know what. If, the, if lines the army are. controls the entire flour supply, and the bakeries, you know, that, that's already a political thing. Well, even in the U.S., I mean, the, that is certainly the case. Like, if you know, there's military control of the, but like the farm bill, you know, like why are we eating white flour all the time? Or why is there corn everywhere? I mean, there's politics behind every single food decision we make. Yeah. Because politics is just survival and victory. Yeah. But I mean, look, I, 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 you know, I'm not out there looking to make a case for, for or against genetic modification. Um, but if I'm having dinner with somebody for whom that seems to be a, uh, an impactful uh, issue, uh, I'll let them talk about it. And your show has, you know, even though you say you're not an activist, there have been some pretty extraordinary results. Like you mentioned Laos. And wasn't it, was that the episode where a, a senior Obama official said that they hadn't really been thinking seriously about the landmine crisis there and they saw your episode and they're just like, shit. They committed $90 million to, uh, to a bomb cleanup in that area. Which is extraordinary. They told me that in Vietnam. Uh, when we were shooting with the president. And actually, the guy who came up to me from the White House staff told me that story. And I, like, completely went to pieces. I, went, I completely lost it. Because he said, so we really hadn't been thinking about that or weren't aware of it. I don't know what his words were. And then he just sort of casually said, so I guess you have done some good after all. <laughs> I completely lost it. I mean, I was just, I, I was a fucking mess afterwards. I, I was not in no way, I was in no way prepared to have to be accused of anything like that, you know? It, it, it messed me up. I yeah. I mean that's that's a So I I I'm going to become like Bono now and like wander from disaster to disaster doing good and no no I'm that not actually. That doesn't sound insufferable at all. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to join my charity, you know, what we are the cooks or something like that. Exactly. <laughs> Cook aid or oh Jesus never. I, I I don't do that stuff, you know. Well, so your show has also done I think a, a huge amount of service in terms of um just opening the eyes of of the viewers here in the US to the humanity of of human experience. I think there's such a an us versus them perspective that is often taken with regards to the rest uh, of the world. I think it's useful to for Americans who don't have passports and who haven't traveled much to see to at least get a picture of what people are like in these countries that we read bad news about all the time. So when news happens you have some clue of who we're talking about, that they're not just stacks of brown bodies, that, that, that they're people. You saw them with their kids. You saw them cooking someone you know, maybe me, dinner. Um, you know, if you remember the Westmoreland remark years ago, in the, the Vietnam War, William Westmoreland said this whole thing about trying to explain why we were not doing well in Vietnam. He said, well, you're Asiatics. They just don't value human life the same way we do in the West. I mean, it was a notorious and grotesque thing to say. Uh, It explains a lot about his success in the field. (laughs) Uh, But I think a lot of people assume that. Uh, There's so much awfulness happening in 
the continent of Africa and other parts of the world, uh, the Middle East and elsewhere that we think, well, they can't possibly value. Well, maybe take a look. Spend a little time. Uh, that's valuable. On the other hand, there are plenty of dick jokes in my show, and I'd like to talk about Let's those. Let's talk about dick jokes. <laughs> no. I, love I, dick I just say yeah, I'm a little uncomfortable with uh, with uh, you know I'm not I'm not out there looking to do good. I'm looking to tell stories, and I'm looking to let people uh, talk about their lives. And to the extent that it's not me talking in the show, I, I, I'm happier and happier. We have a sort of game going on with the producers and the shooters. Um, we used to do a tidy sum up at the end of every show where I'd have some little VO or I'd be like, I think we've learned something today. You know, we could all, you know, maybe we can all reach out and be together in the end. Now we really try to let always end the show with somebody else saying something that kind of drops a truth bomb or better yet leaves us hanging. There's this great end to a film I really like uh, called uh, Killing Them Softly, a Brad Pitt produced film, where it just ends in a, in a really inconclusive way with a, a casual comment that just sort of resonates. I, I really like that. And we also push ourselves to see how long we can go of total silence, no dialogue, no one talking, and certainly no me in VO. And I think we're put because TV hates that. They're, they're terrified of it. They don't like it. You know, someone should all be yammering and reminding you to stay tuned all the time. I think we're up around three and a half minutes um, long sequences where the camera is just drifting around looking at life and maybe music playing. Uh, I, I think there's a competition among the producers and editors to see how long they can go before we can't possibly go on anymore. Those are some like serious storytelling techniques, you know, like ending on the, the dramatic kicker quote that kind of throws everything that came before a little bit into doubt and yes. you know pushing the reader out of or the viewer or we, the audience we, out of their comfort zone. I, I don't want one that that settles matters. There was when we did the Jerusalem uh, Palestine episode uh, the first edit ended with a cutaway to flowers growing on a hill. And I was I went fucking berserk. I I was I became a monster. I was just like this show is not going to end with fucking flowers growing on a hill. Okay. Oh my God. I don't know. <laughs> what show did you just watch? But I don't see a lot of flowers growing. It's a symbol of hope. Hope for Tony. a new day. <laughs> Maybe we could all just, you know, frolic in the fields together. Blossom and together like the flowers. Yeah, not in this lifetime. <laughs> The Eater Upsell is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network and is recorded at Vox Media Studios in San Francisco and New York City. Your two hosts are me, Helen Rosner, and that other guy whose voice you hear every week, Greg Morbido. Our producer is AP Dan, more commonly known as Dan Janine. Our editorial producer is Monica Burton. Our executive producer is Maureen Janone. Our studio team is Miles Ewell and Paige Bethman. Our editor-in-chief and fearless leader is Amanda Clute. And the most important person in this entire process, the one person without whom none of this would be possible, past, present, or future, is you, beautiful and brilliant listener. It's you. Thank you for everything you do. We love you.